blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners. So this is not to be mistaken as, you know, standing to block the way of sinners, like, oh, you're standing in my way, but standing in the way that sinners stand. We might say standing for the way of sinners or standing for things that, standing up for lifestyles that are sinful. So in other words, vouching for sinners or also a passively approving of sinners. But we also see that blessed is man who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. So this is almost like sitting in a privileged space among those who scoff against God, among those who take the things of God not seriously at all. And it means being at home among people who are against God, whose aim in life is to maybe mock the things of God or just to be an irreverent person. And so we notice between walking, standing, and sitting that there is a progression of the sinful lifestyle. First you walk, and then you stand, and then you sit. And it pulls you in almost into this place of, you might call it like a counterfeit blessing. That okay, you're walking in the way and then you're kind of standing in the way, you're standing for something and it's almost a sense of virtuousness and then you almost, you, you sit in this seat of the scoffers and it's like a privileged position. And so there are, it's almost like there are ways to, to get ahead in life, quote unquote, by listening to wicked counsel. It promises you maybe more dignified positions, it asks a trade for you know, maybe a compromise for this better position in life, a way to get ahead. But the psalm continues and says that we should not be seeking these things, but we should be delighting in the law of the Lord. So, just the absence of wicked things, not hanging out with the wrong crowd, maybe not even, I've never watched an R movie ever, R-rated movie ever. That's not good enough because... What is the true blessed state? Where, where does the blessing come from? It's delighting in the law of the Lord. And the whole reason that someone might find themselves in a bad situation, in a wicked situation, sitting among people that are so completely ungodly, is because they've maybe lost the delight of the law of the Lord. They maybe lost their preoccupation with God's word. And so this man, the blessed man, he approaches the law of God with delight. Now the word law isn't that exciting, right? I mean, the word law, we think of, you know, paragraphs and and articles and and a constitution and just things that we have to memorize and we're like, am I breaking the law now? I'm breaking the law here. You know, we think of North Korea or something like that, which is a, a famous surveillance state, and they have so many laws that you don't even know which ones you're breaking, and they're always watching you in some way. And we think, how can someone delight in a law? How can someone delight in, in a sort of social unifying law, a sort of uh, legal series of documents? But we have to understand that the law of the Lord contrasted with maybe in the ancient times like the Code of Hammurabi or one of those ancient Babylon, Babylonian books of the law, the law of the Lord has a particular blessing in it because it is the only true revelation from the only true God. The law of the Lord is actually meaning something 
greater than just mere ceremonial laws, don't do this, don't do that, but also the whole teaching of Scripture. It's the whole instruction of the Lord that is implied here, and this man takes personal delight in it. And this man makes his whole life's preoccupation the law of the Lord. And you might think of, to yourself, like, oh, good for him. Like, he has the law of the Lord. I have my boating on the weekends. But no, this should be something that should teach us that for every Christian, there might be something to this. There might be something to the obsession we should have with the law of the Lord. I could say, you know, the law of the Lord is the teaching of God, and the scriptures you might hold in your hand are, are better than a lot of other things. I could just say that, but I could also let scripture speak for itself. Look in Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, and it makes wise the simple. We see Psalm 119, verse 99 According to the law of the Lord, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. You want to be, are you in school right now? Do you want to be wiser than your teachers? Just study the law. Just study the word of God. And so the law of God surpasses any other law and surpasses any other teaching on earth. And the law is also eternal and it's forever stable. It does not apply to a unique group of people Maybe we can think, oh, it's just the nation of Israel back then. It doesn't really have much to do with us today. No, we cannot be that kind of arrogant. We cannot have that kind of arrogant reaction to it because Jesus said in Luke sixteen seventeen, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everything can be destroyed one day except for the law. It can never be destroyed. It can never pass away. And how is this maintained? How is this delight of the law really kept up? Well, it's kept up obsessively, we might say. This guy meditates on the law day and night. It's the hard-won joy of earnest study and meditation. Maybe these are dark nights. Maybe these are long nights. Maybe these are difficult days. But he meditates nonetheless. And Delight is earned by the discipline we have of meditation. Meditation not crossing your legs and emptying your mind, but actually filling your mind with the Word of God and playing it over and over, almost hitting the replay button in your head over and over on things you might have read today. It's the way, it's, sense, it's a sense of chewing over something long, longer and longer and, and digesting it spiritually to think about it. And so you think, okay, well, that, that's cool, like the law of the Lord, there, there's a blessing there. But don't other religions have the sort of texts where they say, oh, if you study this, you'll be blessed. For instance, I remember having a, a conversation with a, I don't know what you call it in, in Hinduism, is it like a monk, or they're out kind of preaching, and he was talking about their, their holy text of, of Hinduism called the Bhagavad Gita, and, you know, it's, it's this revelation of these gods and these things. And he's saying, and I was asking him, how do you know what you're reading is true? How do you know what you're reading is right? And he said, well, you just read it and you know. You just know deep down. And I'm thinking, like, really? You just instantly, like, oh, this is right. This is, you're, you are your own, you know, best judge of what is right and true. But the psalmist 
Rather than saying, oh, you know it's, it's right, it's, it's helpful, the psalmist gives us the outside look, the objective look of a life that is devoted to the study of the Word of God. It looks at the fruit of your life, the actions you take and the kind of life you live long term rather than the here and now. I think this sounds right to me. And that's what we see in verse 3, where we see that God's Word, it not only delights a person, but it also produces fruit in your life. Verse 3 says, this man, the blessed man, he is like a tree and he's planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. So how does this look through the passage of time, through life as a whole? The psalmist describes the outcome of this singular obsession with the Word of God. And the man is likened to a tree. Now, that doesn't necessarily doesn't necessarily sound like a blessing, like, I'm going to turn it into a tree. That sounds more like a curse, like from an ancient myth. But people turning into trees in Scripture, or people being likened to trees, is a good thing, by the way. Trees are symbols of strength, longevity, and life. And so the blessed man, the blessed man, I'm going to switch between one and two syllables. I'm just going to get used to it. But he's likened to a tree who is planted, or the the word actually can mean transplanted in a good place. So whereas he might have been on poor soil, rocky ground, maybe he would have been on mud and he would have been swept away by the next heavy rain. Maybe he would have been by a river that would have dried up in the summer. Instead, this tree, from reading the word, This man, if you will, from reading the word, is like a tree that you take and you plant on the best soil in the world, which I think is like Nebraska, right? The best soil in the world. So it's like imagine that with a river always running through it. And so the invisible planter that's kind of implied right here is the Lord who plants this man in a place to grow. And we see the effects of this growth. We see fruit in his life. The tree yields fruit in its season, and it's likened to this man in that in all that he does, we see in verse 3, he prospers. And so this verse does say prosper, and shall we take that as to mean, oh man, this, he's going to be rich, he's going to be comfortable, he's going to have leather everything, you know, he's going to have plush things, and it's going to be a great life for him, and we can't get around the fact that he does use the word prosper here, but we should understand that the word prosper is contrasted with the idea of the wicked, that the wicked are driven away themselves, not just that their works are driven away, but that they themselves are driven away. So true prospering in our life is not, you know, having the the mighty touch or the mighty, the, the Midas touch where everything you touch turns to gold, or like just having a, a lucky streak where, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gamble this weekend, I'm going to win big because I'm, I'm lucky, that's the kind of prosperity that I have. No, it's, it manifests itself, true prosperity is the good character of a person's life that cannot be denied by the good works that they do. That's what true prosperity is. Matthew chapter 7 is a place where Jesus himself picks up the analogy of a person being likened to a tree. He says a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, 
That's Matthew chapter 7, verse 18. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he says, thus you will recognize them by their works. Them meaning the, the blessed person who obeys the word of God. And so we can also think, maybe throw in for good measure, John chapter 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. And so all the good in our life, all the blessing in our life, we should understand, as we had already mentioned, comes from God. Every happiness, every bit of gratitude that, that we feel for the life we've lived, it comes from God, it's a gift from God. And so this is the whole of the blessed life. Not a life that, you know, I found a $5 bill on the street today, you know, I, I'm blessed today. No, it's not that. It's the whole of the life and the whole of your character will be blessed from rooting into the Word of God. But we not only see right here that the Word of God bears fruit, we see at the end of the psalm that the Word of God saves us in the time of judgment. And so the Word of God saves. Look with me at verse 5 we see another outcome of the, the wicked and versus the, the righteous person. Verse 5 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So this is the final word for us. This is kind of the application, ready-made application in this psalm for us, for the final end of the wicked and the righteous. And we understand that if there is a law, if there is a law to delight in, there will also be a judgment at the end of all things. And at judgment time, who's going to stand? The person who delighted in the law of the Lord or the person who rejected the law of the Lord? Well, I mean, it's, it's obvious here and it's not a stunning revelation that the wicked will be judged. I mean, that's what, you know, that's it's instinctive to us. Even if you're not a Christian, you're, you're thinking, okay, well, like bad people should be judged. That's what justice is. That's a definition. And so in this judgment, of course, sinners can't hold their case. They are not vindicated. And those who walk, stand among the unrighteous, walk, stand, and sit, I should say, among the sinners and among the unrighteous, they have no place in the assembly of the righteous even. You notice that? Because I should say that's kind of like interesting and it's kind of fascinating because it seems as though the, the judgment of God is equivocated in the next line right here with the congregation of the righteous. The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And maybe people can look at that and say, oh, that's the reason I don't go to church because, you know, the congregation is judgmental. It's, you see, it's, it's paralleled with that. And that's, it's a big club of self-righteous people who think they're better than everyone else. But wait, when we assemble together as Christians, I will concede there is a sort of judgment that is happening, but it's putting us all under submission among the higher standard of the Word of God. Think of 1 Peter chapter 4, which says that there is judgment to begin at the household of God. And so when we come together, we don't judge each other. We judge ourselves by the standard, the higher standard of the Word of God. Because we know we're all prone to sinning and we're constantly checking ourselves against the Word of God and rooting out the hidden sin that's in our lives. And if we were 
able and if we were you know, liable to just overlook a sin in a person's life, that would be mishandling, that would be not delighting in the word of God because that would be not glorifying to him. But we should know that when we come to the word of God and we, we, we come to be judged by the law of God, that we will always come up short. And the salvation we have in God is only through the fact that God knows us and God himself has a relationship with us, and that is through Christ. John Owen, the 17th century Puritan, said, Be not judges of your own condition, I guess we can imply nor of those of each other, but let Christ judge. Christ is the true judge from whom we can seek true salvation, not on our own merits that we've been good according to the law, because we know we have it. We've failed according to God's law, but because the Lord knows our way. Look at verse 6. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Does that mean, conversely, that God does not know the way of the wicked? Like he's thinking, oh, I'm, I'm ignorant of it. They're, they're out there in you know, some wicked city doing wicked things. I don't, I don't really want to know about it. Is that what it means? Like, oh, I don't know what they're doing, but it's got to be bad. No, it's that God's knowledge of the righteous is a sort of intimate knowledge. And it's the beginning of the righteous person's knowledge of God. God keeps a careful watch and observes those intimately who keep his word. And that's a promise we have in this chapter that God, when we delight ourselves in his word, he will know us. He, and he will know us intimately. Jesus reserves a warning for us at judgment on Matthew chapter 7. And he says this in chapter 22. Jesus says, he's talking about the judgment time, the day of judgment. How does it go? He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so we see this right here. After everything they might have done, people are performing miracles. Like, how can they do that without, you know, an entrance into heaven. We think of like the, the Roman Catholic Church. People perform miracles and they're, they're sainted, right? That, that should be a good qualification. But the only qualification that Jesus has for entrance into paradise, into heaven, into forgiveness and eternal peace and communion with God is if we know him. And it's more important than anything else in the world. The question is not whether we think we know God or whether we know the scriptures even, whether we've memorized good scriptures, but whether God knows us. You know, I don't have many famous relatives or any famous relatives that I know of, but there is one, when I researched it, there is one famous guy named Jose Luis Saavedra. And I'm thinking he might be my relative. And he is president and he's owner of the Tapatio Hot Sauce Company. And I think, man, that's really cool, being today Cinco de Mayo and stuff like that. That is my favorite hot sauce. And sometimes I think, like, I wonder if we're related. I wonder if when he passes away, maybe one day, that the Tapatio Empire is going to come to me and then <laughs> I'll live that way. But imagine, 
this is a, a stupid analogy, but imagine if I was to go to his office, which I don't know, it's like a skyscraper, probably in the city of industry, I don't know. But if I go to there and I, th I try to get past security and I say, oh, I'm Jared Saavedra, that's my last name. I know Jose Luis Sr., he's a good friend of mine. What do you think matters in that situation, whether I think I know him or whether he knows me. And it's the same way, silly, but it's the same way for us with God. It doesn't matter whether we think we, we know him or know his scriptures. No, at the end of the day, the only salvific thing is if Christ knows who we are and knows us intimately. Does Christ know you? And when you love the scriptures, you will find the way to love the Lord himself. Because the true treasure in studying the law, from Genesis to Revelation, the true treasure is the knowledge of our Lord Christ. John chapter 10, verse 14 says, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Notice the order in that, that Christ is the one who really, it's important whether he knows us. And so we must ask ourselves today, in a form of application, do we delight in the Word of God? And I think perhaps for some of us, delight and God's law aren't necessarily the two properties we've been able to hold hand in hand when we study in the morning. Maybe you even do daily devotions today, but you're like, I, I don't delight in that. It's not my favorite thing. Like, I delight when I watch Jeopardy at 7 o'clock, but, you know, I'm not sure about the daily devotions, but I, they're there. I do them. Or maybe you're just completely not even thinking about it. You're like, after Sunday, like, I, I just don't even think about the Word of God. I don't see what should draw me into it. Like, do you, do you learn that? Do you, do you pick that up? And maybe you're reluctant to pick up your Bible at all because you're like, I don't necessarily want to. How do I even start if I don't want to? How do I want to want? Like, how does that happen? Well, commenting on these verses... The Puritan Thomas Watson, 17th century, another 17th century guy, has three pieces of advice to give us to delight in the Word of God. And if he were here today, he should just come up here and speak these. But he has three pieces of advice for giving us delight in the Word of God. Number one, set a high estimate upon the Word. Value it. Value it not in the sense that like, oh, the Bible, I'm going to keep it clean and things like that. I'm going to put it on the, the highest bookshelf so that people can see it. But value it. Learn to that a time in the morning or a time in the evening or a time at your lunch break is actually valuable time because we, knowing that there is an objective value to something, will eventually learn to value it in our hearts. Secondly, a second piece of advice on delighting in the Word is praying for a spiritual heart. Pray for a heart that delights with, in the Word of God even more. Because there's some mornings that you're like, it's ha I'm having a bad day, this is not what I want to do right now. Just pray and ask God to even help you get over that hill of, it's, it's kind of a tough thing. So set a highest minute on the Word, but also pray for a spiritual heart to love the things of God even more. But also, thirdly, as we see taught in this psalm, purge out the delight of sin. A lot of times we don't delight in the Word of God because we're already satisfying ourselves. We're spoiling the appetite by heeding and seeking the counsel that is wicked and, and sinful. And so the delight here is more than a bare minimum of what we might call evening and morning devotions, but it's a whole preoccupying, it's an obsessive quality in a Christian's life. And again, I'm going to turn it over to Thomas Watson 
He should just be up here, I don't know. Who had much better things to say about this. He says in one of his books on this chapter, he says, delight turns religion into recreation. That quote's in your bulletin. But he continues and he says, it is like fire to the sacrifice. It is like oil to the wheels, like wind to the sails. It carries us full sail in duty. Those of you who, who serve around the church and ministry, those of you who try to obey the calling of God in your life according to your family or with your family, try to live that calling out, you might have it, you might find it difficult to do, but delight, learning how to delight in the Word of God makes everything with ease, if you will. Not that it's easy, but it's you're you're born by this. You're almost blown into it rather trying to for, than force your way into obedience to God. And so there are two things I want to, to close with because Thomas Watson had better things. So I, I'll insert my two rather than his three. But this delight, number one, we should know is learned. This delight is learned. It's something that takes practice. It's something that's a discipline. It doesn't automatically come to us. And notice it's not a delight. It's joy, Christian joy, Christian delight. is often called a fruit in the Bible. And it's not what brings around the fruit. It's not the fertilizer, it's the fruit. Because sometimes it takes a little bit of practice and understanding to learn it. Like think of a food that you love now that maybe you didn't love as a kid. That's something that we we learn to love. And so we look at something like Psalm 119 verse 32. He says, I will run in the way of your commandments. I will gladly sprint to follow God when you enlarge my heart. And that, and that sounds like a bad thing, oh, I have an enlarged heart. But no, this is a way to say that the heart is bigger and it accepts more of what God is telling it. So we should ask the Lord to enlarge our heart, to make it bigger in love to him. But also, this delight is earned. Not only is it learned, it's also earned. Not earning in the sense of like, I'm, I've earned my salvation, I've earned a free pass from judgment, but in the sense that you're this delight will cost you a lot of things and you'll be able to pay those things and you'll be able to make sacrifices because you've learned to love the Lord and you're not afraid of giving up things to God. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, Paul has this great word. I'm sure it's familiar to you. And he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He gives up everything. And for us today, we might be giving up you know, the counsel of the wicked. It might be giving up a privileged seat among people who are not savory people. But we notice that whatever we give up is completely less valuable than simply gaining Christ and delighting in his word and and knowing him in that way. So why don't we pray as we consider that, as we meditate on that. Father, we thank you once more for your word. We thank you for the, the fun it can be. And how, Lord, it's not just sheer, brutal duty to obey your commandments, but, Lord, for us it can be delightful Lord, help us to make your word our obsession. Help us to make it our standard of living. And Lord, I ask that you would give us a taste of the blessed life that you promise those who meditate on your word. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.